0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. James Victor about his book titled "Tea: Consumption Politics and revolution seventeen seventy three to seventeen seventy six published by Cornell University Press in 2023. This book does a whole bunch of really interesting things, as you might imagine, from the time period and the word tea. Yes, the Boston Tea Party is involved, but a lot more complexity and nuance is at the heart of this book. So, James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to tell us about what really happened.
1: Oh, Miranda, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Could we start off, please, with a bit of an introduction from yourself and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Yes, you know, the this started as um, perhaps a uh, I am mal-designed a goal. I was working on my previous book and I thought, well, I'll just spin off a little article from from that book uh, in order to uh, tease the book before it comes out. And uh, that book began, it was a book about American trade with Asia. It began with uh, a little description of the Boston Tea Party. And I thought, well, I'll just do a simple little study of the advertising um, for tea after the tea party and I'll watch tea advertising disappear. And that will show me how British colonists became Americans and stopped drinking tea. Uh, And that would be a very easy, quick and dirty article to do, especially at the time after new search tools uh, were available to search newspaper advertisements digitally. Well, I started doing the search and everything came out completely differently. Uh, I didn't just find the fall of tea, but I found it was much more delayed uh, than I thought it would be. The tea advertisements lasted well into 1774 and even 1775, sometimes a year or two after the Boston Tea Party. And then I saw the tea advertisements come back in 1776. Uh, And as I kept on working on the story, I realized that it couldn't be an article. I couldn't tell the story of these advertisements without telling the much bigger story uh, that is the rest of this book about tea overall uh, and sort of the fall and rise again of this consumer good.
2: I am always amused um, when books sort of start with something like, oh, this will be small, straightforward, easy. And it's like, hang on a second. Um, So having read this book, uh, I'm definitely not surprised you couldn't do it all in one article. There's there's definitely too much to get into for that scope. Um, And one of the things that you're doing is, I think, really helpful and a useful starting point, given the iconography, really, of the Boston Tea Party. So can you tell us a bit about the myth or myths that you're busting in this book?
1: Yes, there's myths large and small. Um, Let me start with two. One is one that's more familiar to scholars, uh, and it's a very prominent historiographical theme, Uh, and that is this idea of consumers who refuse to consume. Uh, This is T.H. Breen's argument in Marketplace Revolution, and in his earlier Baubles of Britain, Article uh, that talks about how colonists chose not to consume goods. It was the widespread consumer availability of consumer goods that made a boycott possible. And this boycott became a meaningful method of political expression. And this is this myth has been very appealing to us as historians because, of course, it allows for us to see a much broader swath of Britons participating in politics than you would normally see. It's not just the few um, largely men, white men of substantial property who could vote, uh, whether in England or in North America, but uh, you can suddenly see a much broader swath of men and women uh, of different property levels um, and even of different races participating in politics through boycott politics. It's a very alluring way to talk. But the problem with this is, is that all the evidence that Breen brought to the story wasn't evidence of what Britons actually did, whether they were North American Britons or English Britons. Um, It was evidence of what people said they did. Um, My eight-year-old was asking me um, just a couple days ago, Daddy, what is this book about? And I summarized it for her as this is a book about the difference between what people say they're going to do and what they actually do, uh, and it's a big mistake for us as historians to conflate the two. And Breen sort of leaves out those two conflated. And when we dig through, we realize in the Continental Association and the grand boycotts of the late uh, colonial period throughout North America, lots of people say they're not going to consume British goods, or they say they're not going to consume tea, and they may make a big theatrical show of it, but actual merchant ledgers and import and export records show that tea consumption continued despite these claims. Um, so uh, that's the historiographic myth I want to pop. But there's the smaller, but perhaps in a way, larger myth uh, for all the people who, people who grew up as schoolchildren, especially in North America, and have the idea of the Boston Tea Party um, in their heads. Uh, one myth that needs popping is just The idea that the Boston Tea Party destroyed all the tea, Um, the big thing I was quite surprised to discover was that we hadn't, even after 250 years uh, had passed on this story, we hadn't even properly traced what happened to the cargoes on all the tea ships. And it turns out that the cargo on the fourth ship that brought tea to Boston, the William, uh, was not only not destroyed in Boston Harbor, was safely locked up in Castle William, sold to colonists uh, in 1775, uh, with the proceeds sent on to the East India Company that year. So, precisely the events that Bostonians hoped to avoid are actually, by the Boston Tea Party, are actually the events that really happened.
2: And. Definitely a gap, not just between what people said and did, but also what actually happened and what we remember happened. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we started off with that. Um, and there's a, all right.
1: if, if I may, there's Please, a, there's a relationship between those two because you mm. know what we remember happening is partially an artifact, a political artifact. It's an po- artifact in some ways of revolutionary era politics, uh, and and the way we do history since then, where we tend to privilege the noisy and the politically extreme for the representative. I think it's especially hard for Americans with this because of course their founding fathers are radical, violent radical extremists and are therefore by definition not representative of the mainstream. And so when we talk about what average people were thinking and doing, it's not the same as what political extremists or even political leaders would say they needed to do. Because of course, leaders lead people in directions that they're not currently already, uh, lead people to places where they currently aren't already. Mm-hmm.
2: So all of this means that um, we, we can't stay in 1774, the, the year of the Boston Tea Party, and kind of as if nothing had happened before that, right? Um, I think something you do so helpfully in the book is help us explain kind of how we got to that, point. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. So what can we learn about 1774 by looking at tea consumption and politics in 1773 and even before that as well?
1: Mm. In the maybe, let's say, the half decade before the Boston Tea Party, there is uh, there was a previous effort at um, tea, uh, anti-tea boycotting that was partially successful um, and ultimately largely fell apart uh, at the end. That uh, that effort went along with continued widespread smuggling. And this widespread smuggling was part of why the boycott effort collapsed, because smugglers evaded not only imperial customs officials, but also patriotic uh, political inquisitors that wanted to simply uh, stop goods that were allowed uh, by the empire. Uh, and so the that smuggling is not distinctive to North America. There's nothing, uh, perhaps more British at all than smuggling in this period. Uh, tea smuggling in particular was widespread in England and Scotland as well. Uh, but Boston did stand out for, uh, the heightened contradiction that, uh, that it sat, uh, stood in uh, for being uniquely delinquent in its in the boycott in 1770. This is the, the earlier anti tea boycott where Boston uh, continued to import much more tea than in than many other regions in North America, and this uh, this created a problem uh, such that landing tea there in the later uh, anti East India Company movement in 1773, it seemed uniquely viable in Boston in a way it didn't seem in other cities because Boston had been so delinquent previously in 1770. Um, And while it seemed more viable and appealing to the company, it also seemed, uh, for the same reasons, all the more dangerous uh, and necessary to prevent uh, for Boston patriots, because to Allow it to collect, to allow the East India Company's tea to be uh, successfully imported into Boston or into any of the ports where it was sent uh, would be very demoralizing to the movement as a whole. The need to maintain some sort of continental uh, alignment uh, was at the fore in 1773. And in 1773, Boston still sort of maintained the role of a central leadership node. The Boston Committee of Correspondents wrote was riding for the first time um, in the fall of 73 to other cities like Charleston and South Carolina and into the Atlant- to uh, New York and Philadelphia. Uh, it was newly riding to them as well. And so for Boston to fall or for it to be seen to fall was a distinctive uh, political problem for the patriot movement as a whole in a way that it wouldn't be if patriots in Newport or New York or in uh, the Chesapeake, had failed to stop tea. Uh, Boston had this. Boston's unique political role uh, made this contradiction all the more potent.
2: Hmm. All right. So things are building specifically in Boston, not so much in other places. Why then was it that 1774 was the year? If if things are building, why not 1773? Or why not it builds up and takes a while and ends up being 1775? Why was it 1774 that was such a key year?
1: 74 is the the year in which the consequences of the choices people made in 73 uh, come to bear. Uh, in 1773, Parliament had passed the Tea Act, which uh, allowed for the direct sale of uh, direct importation of tea into North America from Britain by the English East India Company. Um, this act, I should add, is widely misinterpreted, certainly in historical scholarship and by many of the public history lectures I've heard recently on the subject. Uh, the Tea Act uh, did not enforce an East India Company monopoly. Uh, That monopoly already existed in law. Uh, It did make it potentially more possible for the company to sell tea at a lower price to colonists, Um, and the Tea Act did also maintain the low nominal tea tariff that had existed since the Townsend Acts half a decade prior. Uh, But many of the arguments against the Tea Act start to fall apart because, of course, we see that... uh, If the East India, it was often argued that the East India Company would engross the tea trade in North America and then be able to raise prices. But of course, it didn't exist in a vacuum, and everyone knew this. the The Dutch and other East India companies were out there. If the English company maintained a ridiculously high price, colonists could simply smuggle their tea from elsewhere, uh, from Europe or the Caribbean, just as Britons in England did. So uh, it seems kind of silly. Uh, to think that the Tea Act was the end-all and be-all. Uh, actually, what the Tea Act was the end-all and be-all of was uh, the Boston's potential role in leading the Patriot movement uh, because the landing of that Tea would have been so destructive. Um, but in all the other cities, uh, Tea isn't destroyed. In uh, Tea is sent by the English East India Company to Philadelphia, and the Philadelphia Patriots, having been informed by Paul Revere, uh, of the Boston Tea Party on December twenty fourth, seventeen seventy three, the following day, Christmas Day, um, the Polly arrives uh, in Delaware, the Delaware River with the East India Company's tea for Philadelphia, and Philadelphians are very careful to avoid the outcome that Boston had precipitated with its destruction of the tea. And Philadelphia patriots carefully get the Polly to turn around and go back to England, and they prevent this all or nothing confrontation that had occurred in Boston from happening again in Philadelphia. Likewise, in South Carolina, the company had sent tea there, and there, patriots, though they opposed the tea and convinced the East India Company consignees to step away from their role in it, I think perhaps saying they resigned might be a too strong a term, uh, but they convinced them to step away. Nevertheless, um, the tea is ultimately in, landed and impounded by the South Carolina Customs Collector. Uh, And in South Carolina, this does not precipitate this great existential conflict over taxation and representation and empire that it does in Boston, because in South Carolina, the Patriots are more confident that um, their fellow merchants will not try to purchase this tea from the customs collector, and that the customs collector will keep the tea locked up. And so there's some, I suspect there was some sort of um, sub-Rosa negotiation going on there to prevent uh, the kind of conflict that occurred in Boston. Uh, That New York tea was stuck at sea and ended up in Antigua uh, uh, over the new year, and instead the only tea that got destroyed was the tea sent to Boston. Um, And this made it a big deal because Many people disapproved of the destruction of the tea in Boston. Others greatly supported it, and so that this news of the destroyed tea became the great news of early seventy-four. Uh, and of course, as I just mentioned, while the Boston Patriots destroyed tea on three ships—the Dartmouth, uh, the Polly, and the Beaver—the sort of a, in some ways, in these more. Uh, potted histories of the American Revolution. They can read like the the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria of the American Revolution. Uh, but there is this fourth ship, the William. So while Patriots destroy the T on the first three ships, uh, the T on the fourth ship is wrecked on Cape Cod, salvaged, successfully rescued, uh, brought to Castle Island in Boston Harbor, and safely stored there. The result of this is that uh, as 1774 begins, Boston is in this strange position of needing to defend itself for having destroyed the tea, an act that many other patriots even saw as too extreme. George Washington, Ben Franklin, uh, many other patriots, uh, Henry Lawrence, uh, Richard Henry Lee, disapproved of it in some way, thought it was too violent. Uh, but at the same time, there is still this other cargo of tea that is undestroyed and might still be landed. And given. Boston Patriots, uh, Boston Patriots, of course, knew the history that Bostonians had, uh, their willingness to consume tea in previous boycotts, and therefore they were uniquely threatened by this yet-to-be-landed fourth cargo of tea from the company that could at any moment uh, be brought ashore and offered for sale and risked undermining the cause. This forced Bostonians to kick local Boston town politics into an extremely high gear uh, and um, push much more aggressively than elsewhere. And so 74 because becomes this key political moment because on the one hand, Boston patriots have to be much more aggressive and extreme in order to prevent the tea from being landed. And on the other hand, parliament thinks it needs to have some sort of a response. And yet other colonists and other colonies remain quite ambivalent about what they think about the tea party overall, m- many of whom may not have known about this fourth cargo, I should add.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Hmm.
2: So I think that clearly describes kind of that the situation um, that Boston is in at this point is not stable um, and, and something needs to be resolved from it. And there's a lot of different opinions about what that might be. So can you tell us about what some of the proposed ways forward were about how can we move on from this very tense situation, um, and then kind of what happened to those attempts.
1: Yes, I mean, you know, it, it it's useful to, to pause for a moment and and think that about what harborfront politics were like, and harbor front politics were like politics everywhere, negotiated, and it's important to think of the waterfront and the harbor front as a negotiated space, and so the political. Uh, negotiation that happens in many other ports. It happens in Charleston, South Carolina. It happens in Philadelphia. It will happen in New York when that tea shipment arrives in April. And of course, it also, lest we forget, it happened in Antigua when the ship that eventually brought the tea to New York stopped there for repairs and then carried on. Um, it's a negos- This is a politically negotiated settlement as people make choices in the harbor. And the decisions about how to move forward after the Boston Tea Party are similar political negotiations. And it is sort of the, the 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 no-go areas that each side has that preclude any sort of practical negotiation from functioning in that year. So a couple of ways forward to address the Tea Party. It's worth noting the Boston Tea Party was a substantial uh, destruction of property and a meaningful property crime, and therefore was a as a criminal act, uh, there was a possibility of a criminal trial, and this would have proceeded in the state of, Ma- or in the colony, rather, of Massachusetts. Uh, this was difficult to pursue because the grand jury was elected by the town of Boston, and the grand jurors were chosen for their political, uh, for their political reliability and their support for the Patriot cause, not for their uh, legal rectitude. Uh, so when you have grand jurors with a last name like Revere uh, deciding on whether to indict, it's no surprise that they decide to indict people based on the principle that patriots shouldn't be indicted, not on uh, the actual validity of the charges. So it becomes impossible to bring a criminal trial, a criminal case to trial in Massachusetts. Firstly, because of the grand jury. Secondly, because uh, mobs in the street physically prevent any witnesses or uh, any uh, put other potential parties to the case from showing up anywhere near the courthouse and even begin to start intimidating judges. Uh, and of course, uh, this witness intimidation becomes a quite practical uh, approach for patriots going forward. It, it, it's useful, I think, at this point to remember that we need to think of the patriots as... Um, having this paramilitary Sons of Liberty organization that operates somewhat outside the uh, the more upstanding political leaders. And there are meaningful analogies to be drawn here between the relationship between the Sons of Liberty and the more respectable patriot leaders. And, for example, the Ku Klux Klan and the Democrats after the Civil War in the American South or uh, between the, the IRA or between Sinn Féin and the IRA and Sinn Féin. Um, these are politicians and paramilitaries operating hand in glove in a way that the paramilitaries give the politicians some sort of plausible deniability. Um, but the politicians can still somehow speak for them. So, uh, the, this gets so severe that the day after the Boston tea party, all the people who were the obvious eyewitnesses, the crew on the three ships that were, attacked and had their cargoes dumped in the harbor, these crewmen all go immediately to a notary and sign out, uh, swear out a notarized document testifying that they have absolutely no idea who committed the Tea Party, who was there. They cannot identify a single person, and they all sign this notarized document. Of course, it was a lie, but it was really useful for them personally because having created this notarized document, they could now this document could now guarantee their own safety. They didn't have to worry ab- about attack from mobs. Uh, Sons of Liberty could trust that they would be, un- that these men would be unable to identify them in courts of law, because if they did uh, on a witness stand identify one of the tea partiers, well, then there was a sworn uh, notarized affidavit that could be used to impeach their testimony. So, uh The criminal trial was impossible in Massachusetts. A civil suit was also a possibility in Massachusetts, and and it fell apart for all the same reasons. On top of that, in particular, the company consignees would have had to make it to the courthouse in Boston to bring the case. Uh, The third venue where a case could have gone forward uh, was in England itself, where it was theoretically, it was potentially possible to try the Tea Partiers. Um, The uh, the, uh, attorney and solicitor general managed to find one law that uh, applied extraterritorially, uh, and that was the law on treason, which uh, applies uh, no matter where you commit it on the, in the globe. But it was, it was, of course, a bit of a stretch to define the Tea Party as treason. The reasoning went along the lines of, they resist and oppose the law, therefore it's treason. But of course, breaking the law is breaking the law you broke. It is not also treason. Um, so that fell apart. Um, and the fourth potential avenue was to simply privately, through some sort of organized movement, reimburse the East India Company for its losses. This was a, a useful way to seem and appear reasonable. Many people advocated for it, but you know most people advocated that other people should do it with their money. Um, other people's money is always better to spend than one's own. And so the movement for reimbursing the company was never that exciting and never that uh, people were never that motivated for it. The two groups that were most interested in reimbursing the company were conservative merchants in Boston or uh, the merchants living in London who traded with uh, Boston or North America as a whole, who were at least willing to get put, provide guarantees and securities uh, that that payment could be secured from elsewhere. Uh, simply because they wanted to keep that trade open. But this came to naught. And so instead, Parliament decided to take up its its own, um, take up the take up action itself, and to move forward with what became the Port Act, after all of the above had come to naught. And the Port Act mandated exactly what I just described. It mandated reimbursement of the East India Company for its losses. And it was used as a way to achieve political... Um, Obeisance to get the colonists to submit to Parliament was the purpose of the Port Act, and therefore it forced Boston's port to close until the company was reimbursed. But um, this was itself also, for other reasons, a political disaster because um, it was quite immediate. You know, if it had had a delay of several months, for example. It would have been quite scary and unmotivating, and perhaps have gotten the reimbursement to occur, or perhaps it could have been in place for a couple weeks or a month even, uh, doing to achieve punitive damages and then be done. But what happened was, Parliament passed the Port Act, but then never put a time limit on how long it should be in place. The only way it could be landed or be lifted was either if Parliament gave up and repealed the act, that couldn't be allowed to happen, of course, or if the Patriots chose to pay for the tea. So, as and Parliament and Gage, who was uh, General Gage, who was soon sent out to enforce the Port Act, insisted that it be paid for not by private individuals, but by official organizations, either the colony of Massachusetts or the town of Boston. So, this meant that as long as Patriots refused to act, they could keep the port of Boston closed and then they could claim that. Parliament was victimizing Boston. But of course, all the decision making power about whether to open the port of Boston was in Patriots' hands, but the people who were made to look bad by it were in Parliament. So this was a disaster for the British government as a result.
2: No, absolutely. Um, all of those factors and incentives together creates quite a combustible picture what then was the association? And given how effective it is to do to understand these events through the analysis of different actors and different incentives, can you take us through that angle as well with the association?
1: Yes. So, you know, if you think of the Port Act as closing the harbor of Boston in order to force for Force repayment. So, this is accomplishing economic damage to force political change. Well, this is exactly what the association is. In this case, it's we're going to boycott Britain, stop trading with Britain in order to force political change. The initial, ostensible, semi plausible explanation is they're going to stop trading with Britain. This will cause pain. For the merchants based in England and Scotland that are trading with North America, 1774 is an election year. These merchants, feeling and/or anticipating this pain, will then apply pressure on their MPs, and the MPs will there will either be new MPs elected, or there'll be a new Parliament with new views, or simply the MPs will change their views because merchants pressure them, uh, and the colonists will get what they want as a result of this. This is. On some high level, supposed to be the goal, but it's not at all what happens, because by the time the association takes effect, uh, the ban on ex- the ban on imports from Britain only uh, commences on December first, uh, seventeen seventy four. The ban on the consumption of imports from Britain only takes effect the following March, and the ban on exports to Britain only takes effect the September uh, September tenth, seventeen seventy five. So there's such a delayed. Uh, schedule that it completely misses the timeline of having any effect on British parliamentary politics. But also, of course, the delay will have other problems uh, as well. It becomes um, uh, in anticipating the boycott, it allows people to prepare for that economically. I'll, I'll circle back to that later. Um, so the association is this broader boycott movement, and it stands out this and the earlier 1770 Townsend Act boycotts for being some of the earliest, perhaps the earliest uh, political boycott movements that we could really document in history. Uh, and it is, uh, they're meaningful and important for that reason alone, full stop. There's great value in understanding that. But uh, the, way the, uh, the way the association worked is it we tend to think of it in this sort of uh, mythical way of imagining it presents individual consumers the opportunity to make meaningful decisions about consuming or not consuming British goods. It did that. But where it really mattered most was how it put pressure on merchants and got merchants to simply not bother importing those goods in the first place. So the delay, the near year delay between the The cessation of importation from Britain and the cessation of exportation to Britain allows merchants based in North America roughly nine or so months, nine or 10 months, to continue exporting to Britain and making money doing this as long as they continue, as long as they maintain and abide by the ban on importing from Britain. So the the patriots managed to buy merchant support for the association by letting them continue exporting long after the ban on importation has begun. And this, by achieving, by getting the merchants to agree not to import goods in the first place, patriots can then say, see, look at all these colonists who agree with us and don't consume goods that, you know, weren't, that are no longer being imported, so are harder to have, perhaps. Um, And so this is a a useful political maneuver for patriots. Uh, And most importantly, of course, the boycott movement, as Every other boycott movement is perhaps most meaningful in how it creates common feeling amongst people within the group. This the shared sense of being part of a movement and being part of an organization or a collective group effort that's trying to do something. On some level, it doesn't even matter whether the boycott is successful. And of course, this boycott is not successful. Um, It matters that people begin to feel linked to each other in a meaningful way when they never had before, when South Carolinians and Bostonians had never had anything in common, really, that could give them a reason to have common cause with each other, except for the fact of being fellow British subjects. So this gives them something new, some other way to be knit together that is potentially even eventually outside the empire. Um, and so this becomes, a, uh, this becomes meaningful in this way. Uh, but along the way, the different steps that they get people to come in are very piecemeal. You know, South Carolinians have to be bought off to join the association. They are given special permission to continue exporting rice to Europe. Uh, Many planters and merchants, uh, their allegiance to the association is bought not only by the delayed uh, export provisions, but also uh, because these export provisions allow merchants to recuperate, uh, to recover debt and to collect debt uh, that they couldn't otherwise collect. And so this effectively buys merchant support for the association overall.
2: Okay, so that's a whole bunch of things that the association is trying to do, and in some cases succeeds, especially on the kind of political propaganda side. But to what extent did this actually stop people from buying and drinking tea?
1: You know, it didn't. Um, the The evidence, the evidence is uh, we've often assumed it did. And but the evidence is absolutely not there. And it's worth just stopping and thinking for a moment about how the association functioned. And the patriots were, by and large, very clever politicians. And so what they did was uh, they sent local people uh, go to go door to door, asking their fellow colonists to literally sign an association document, usually the head of household to sign for his house household and um, if you were a householder and were asked to sign and you look at this document and let's presume for this exercise that you are a householder who can read. Um, you, you see your neighbors' names on this list. Uh, you see fellow members of your church and uh, the people that purchase things at your shop or uh, the people that uh, to whom you sell goods from your farm. And you realize that you notice their names and that your neighbors will notice yours or its absence. So you sign. You sign because you need to be seen to sign. And uh, many people uh, write down in private correspondence descriptions to this effect that they signed because they had to sign, not because it was going to actually affect their behavior. And so when you begin to realize this, you also notice that patriots understood this as well, and they very carefully Never actually inspected everyday householders' kitchens or larders or pantries to see what goods they actually were or were not consuming. They were not interested in doing this. They were interested in getting the public to agree to the association and to accept the Patriots' political power to or the Patriots' assertion of political power to enforce it. And as long as the public agreed to accept the Patriots' claims to power, the Patriots wouldn't look too closely into whether the public was actually listening to them uh, because the, the boycott was quickly becoming uh, a relatively meaningless exercise in some ways. So you asked about the actual consumption. So the, the biggest tell, I think, is the price of tea. Um, It took me a while to construct a a price series that could really look at tea prices in 1774. Uh, But in the the appendix to one of the appendixes to my book, I lay this out, the tea prices in 1774 fall, and they fall quite substantially. They fall from the spike that had occurred in late 1773 as a result of the East India Company-Boston Tea Party importation conflict uh, back down to uh, the lower level where they had been at previously. So, how do we explain this fall in prices? Is it that consumers simply widespread, widespread amount of consumers simply stopped buying tea? That's a plausible explanation. But pushing against this is the problem that the reason tea prices were so high in 1773 is that private merchants, anticipating the East India Company was sending over 600,000 pounds of tea to North America, stopped. Making any private importations of tea, either legal tea from London or illegal tea smuggled in from the Netherlands. Uh, and so uh, there was a tea shortage from 1773. That's unmet demand. And then, of course, there was the tea demand of 1774. And then, because people knew the boycott was coming in all sorts of goods, we see merchants describing how they were selling substantially larger amounts of goods than they were previously because in 1774, everyone was stocking up in anticipation of the boycott that would happen in 1775. Uh, And so if you look simply at not tea, but the overall importation of goods from Britain, it's up 30% in 1774 because people are importing largely cloth and other manufactured goods and stocking up for this later ban. So, How do tea prices go down in the face of three years of demand being compressed into one year? uh, While there may be some people who choose to boycott the tea, we need something else other than falling demand to uh, explain the fall in price. It needs to be a rise in supply. So uh, I can't prove or document the, the rise in supply because this is smuggled tea we're talking about. It's tea smuggled in from the Netherlands, smuggled into North America largely, probably New York and Philadelphia, the two cities which had so fully and completely adhered to the non-importation of British tea in 1770 and continued to do so up through 1774, um, they had had well-developed tea smuggling networks linking them to the Netherlands and they were able to import large amounts of tea in that year and bring tea prices down. So I think the biggest piece of evidence is this fall of of tea prices in 1774, which points to just how much tea buying or how much tea supply must have been coming in to occasion this fall. But then, of course, we simply see private diaries and merchant ledgers recording widespread tea sales. Well after the ban on tea sales begins in March of 1775, colonists are buying tea, patriotic colonists are buying tea. I even have a section of the book describing, which was blew my mind, but now that I think about it, it doesn't blow my mind at all, uh, patriot politicians who made a pretty penny selling tea, uh, often when they themselves were in the position to enforce the ban on tea, they then went and sold it anyway. But... <sighs> What is what is older than the story of corrupt politicians who line their pockets? That's that's nothing new. Um, so maybe I, you know, I was I was surprised and offended. And then I realized, no, that's that's completely normal. And <laughs> there's nothing more British, more American or more French or Chinese or Russian or any. That's very normal. So uh, I realized, yeah, that's actually makes it less an exceptional story and much more of an understandable story.
2: No, absolutely. Um, I do want to ask about something that does seem to be a bit exceptional, though maybe not, um, because as much as we've talked about kind of the wider politics um, that are impacting tea, that it's not just the Boston Tea Party, I want to talk about some other products as well, because it's not just tea that is being contested here. And yet you talk about in the book that the way in which tea was banned was in fact Different, somewhat exceptional than boycotts or bans against other products. So, can you kind of take us through this difference and what accounts for it?
1: Yes, that's right. You know, the tea was one of a handful of items that were banned no matter where they came from. Uh, And almost all goods were simply banned based on from whence they came. So, the non import provisions said no importation of goods from. The British Isles from England, Scotland, and Ireland, and no importation of a, an enumerated list of goods from the British Caribbean. Uh, and they said no exportation of goods to these places either, <clears throat> and no consumption of goods uh, from these places. And notably, sugar stands out as something that was still importable from the British Caribbean. But tea is the, is the rare item that was banned, no matter what country it came from. Because of course, while there was British Tea or tea imported by the English East India Company British tea let's call it there was also tea smuggled in from Europe and the majority of tea in the Atlantic world was um, imported not by the English East India Company by but by the other East India companies in continental Europe, and indeed the majority of tea consumed even in Britain was smuggled tea. So, so too had the majority of tea consumed in North America being smuggled. So, because tea had become such a potent political symbol, and uh, Breen is right about this, uh, and how the protest of tea, especially the burning of it, um, the the Boston Tea Party. Of course, they throw the tea in the water, but actually the more common method was to burn it, to burn uh, a tea cargo in Annapolis. They even burned an entire tea ship down to the waterline. But elsewhere, people uh, nowhere near the harbor front, perhaps simply uh, going to the town square to burn some cargo of tea they had in their, uh, or some supply of tea they had in their cupboard. Uh, this became, uh, this was a rally something perhaps between uh, you can imagine it as being something between an, an American pep rally uh, and uh, two minutes of hate, um, depending on how uh, how spicy the local po- political leaders wanted it to be. But this required uh, tea to be banned from wherever it from no matter where it came from because of its potency as a political symbol and because the f- lack of trust. The colonists had in one another. The sense that, well, you know, now that British tea costs about the same as Dutch tea, we don't really know where the tea comes from. And you could be lying about where it comes from. So the only way to really know that you're destroying or not consuming all your British tea is to destroy all your tea. Uh, and so whereas people continue to consume coffee, uh, for example, <clears throat> pardon me, and that coffee comes from uh, could come even from places like Jamaica as long as it came before a given date. Tea alone stands out uh, for this need to be boycotted no matter whence it comes.
2: Hmm. Very interesting to think about that. And especially the practical element of like, what day is it on and what's in people's cupboards or versus what's not. Um, And of course, makes the challenge of um, monitoring this, of persuading people uh, in some ways so much more difficult. So how did especially the patriots try to convince people not to drink tea? And to what extent was this propaganda successful?
1: It wasn't. But, you know, you've made me realize just in the way you pitched that question, you made me realize there's a second uh, small piece to the. I want to add to my previous answer. You know, you say you're talking about monitoring and, you know, all the goods that come from the British Isles or the British Caribbean are much easier to monitor because uh, the Imperial Customs Administration that's been set up in North America is monitoring it. And it's supposed to allow just those things in after all. Right. So you can see the items that are legally imported. As George Washington points out, the customs houses all keep what he calls authentic lists in their public records. So you just have to go to the openly held public records in your customs house to see what's been legally imported. And then you know what ship it came in, you know who imported it, you know how to stop it. Smuggled items, of course, aren't documented on purpose. And so there are no authentic lists. In order to dissuade colonists to drink from drinking the tea uh, because it couldn't easily be stopped, you needed to have some way to persuade them. Uh, and Patriots efforts at persuasion veered into outright propaganda. There were all sorts of efforts to do so. The most obvious and meaningful, and perhaps in some ways also least noticeable until you know to look for it, is simply the network of newspapers that existed and the way they reprinted each other's news so that a t- anti-T protest in one colony or one town could get written up in a local newspaper and then reported on again and again in other colonies and have that news spread. That was meaningful propaganda in and of itself. And of course, there is a selection bias that goes on here. When there's an anti-T protest or a resolve by local officials or local patriot leaders, whether they're officials or not, to oppose tea or to not consume british goods that's news but the absence of such a resolve or the lack of such a protest is by nature not news and so the natural selection bias of what people chose to print about was they chose to print about new things that happened or political statements that people made not the absence of those statements or the absence of things happening and so A newspaper that lists a whole bunch of protests against tea and British goods or a whole bunch of resolves against British goods is, of course, on one level, implying that there are thousands of other towns that had no objection to it because it's not listing them, And but it's not listing their non-objections. And so we end up with this uh, awkward way in which we only see the noisy people uh, making their claims, and we have very little way to assess whether everyone really supported them. So... Patriots perhaps wandered the same and needed to create a broader web of persuasion and propaganda for individual colonial consumers. So one of these was the myth that patriot writers began to put about that tea was bad for your health. And of course if you've read um, if you read the newspapers, in our lifetimes, or if you read uh, health magazines or any health section in any uh, uh, men's or women's health magazine, uh, uh, the question of, is tea good for you? Is coffee good for you? This kind of stuff is a perpetual health question. It seems there is no real answer to. But at the time, there was also no clear, settled answer. And there was strong official professional medical sentiment on, on both sides of the issue. But of course, patriots being good, patriot writers being good politicians simply collected all the bad news about tea, the, the pa- medical advice that tea caused everything from um, a farting to death uh, and said, you shouldn't drink it because it will do all these terrible things for your body. Uh, and uh, published uh, these accounts to persuade colonists. But, uh, you know, it, it's funny. Colonists don't seem to have been persuaded by this in any meaningful way because uh, one of the biggest folk medicine theories about tea uh, in North America was that tea was some sort of a medical tonic and could be used to help people recover. And this this makes sense. The moderate caffeine that's available in tea can help perk you up and make you feel a little bit better. So. Um, so the folk remedy of people are sick and they need tea persisted throughout the association. And colonists from the Carolinas up to Connecticut would ask patriot, local patriot leaders for special dispensation to drink tea because they were sick. Uh, well, it appears nowhere in the association, the general folk assumption of this was so widespread and so well-known amongst patriot leaders that the leaders that I found, and from the Carolinas to Virginia to Maryland to Connecticut all said, yes, certainly, please have some, uh, uh, and gave them special dispensation. Uh, So it seems that even patriot officials didn't necessarily believe their own propaganda. Uh, Other storylines were that the king had forced tea or was somehow imposing tea on the colonists. And this was a way of rewriting the Boston Tea Party as a uh, as a way to keep, as a way to resist tea and helps lead to the assumptions that often exist to this day, that, uh, that the United States is a coffee drinking company and Britain country and Britain is a tea drinking country. And it was the American revolution, uh, that made Americans go from tea to coffee. But of course, this is a silly and sloppy, uh, a series of assumptions. Uh, We can quantify American tea consumption, and American tea consumption in 1800 per capita was just as high as it was in 1770 uh, per capita. So it doesn't seem like colonists, uh, when Americans, colonists became Americans, they didn't really stop being tea drinkers in any meaningful way. Hmm. Oh, go ahead.
2: No, please continue.
1: Well, I was going to say, I think the most potent and persuasive piece of the story becomes this the gender story around tea uh, and uh, tea becomes this useful part of the po- tea politics and tea propaganda centers heavily around gender. There is this way in which political leaders try to emasculate men into joining the boycott. Um, the the storyline would go, to put it crudely, you know, women assumed to be weak-willed and unable to control their feelings and sentiments even women can control themselves and not drink tea. So what does this say about men who still drink tea? Uh, I remember reading a line that went to the effect of uh, also that tea has, this could often be expressed in the medical literature by saying that tea was medically effeminizing. So it turned, uh, one one doctor claimed it turned men into women and women into God knows what, um, which which sort of underlines that way in which tea is meant to be emasculating. But Conversely, on the other hand, this also was a meaningful way that women got into tea politics, and you got to see women writing into newspapers saying, "Yes, we're seizing, uh, we're we're making decisions." Because in reality, women make made meaningful purchasing decisions for the household as a whole, and made potentially even more meaningful decisions about. After having purchased what was to be purchased, they went about and decided what to serve and what to put on their table. Whether they were uh, fishermen's wives. Or whether they were planters' wives, uh, these women would make decisions that could affect large numbers of other people. And so women were, in this sense, people of consequence, although rhetorically, this sort of th- this is hidden by the rhetorical tool of saying women of using women as a way to emasculate men and goad men into uh, not drinking. Because if even if even women can be people of consequence and make these decisions, then surely men must do at least as much.
2: Huh. Really interesting to think about how those things are being used and the extent to which they do or don't translate into practice. I, I want to pick up on that amazing stat of the per capita in 1800, um, because as you say, it's not like the U.S., stops being tea drinkers just because they become independent. And as you've already discussed, the boycott doesn't really stop people drinking tea. The propaganda is only somewhat effective, maybe not even very effective at all. And yet you talk about in the book that the value of tea as a political tool, as a symbol of resistance, does wane um once the Revolutionary War begins in seventeen seventy five. So can you talk us through kind of why that happens if people are still very much drinking it and it's still part of the fabric of everyday life?
1: Yeah. So it, it happens. There's two Pieces to how T's value as a political symbol collapses during the war. One is the obvious. The war is simply a much more direct method to resist parliament and to engage in politics or to support the common cause or. Even for some people that are particularly avant-garde, to be American, uh, American as a term to describe a political identity is is a very fraught term in this period, and, and shouldn't be overinterpreted. Uh, but perhaps for some, right? Um, well, you know, the war was the the most advanced method of engaging in this, the most potent method of engaging in this, the most meaningful. If you Donated money to the cause, if you served in the Continental Army or your local militia, if you um, gave relief funds to Boston or f- relief food to Boston because of the Port Act, what was, uh, what did it matter what you did in your private home, whether you consumed tea or not, whether you wore a coat made of British wool uh, that had been imported five years prior or not? It, it seemed somewhat irrelevant. So the war simply became the headline story. That's part of it. But also, fundamentally, on the ground in the colonies, especially in 75, the war was also a story of property seizure by the continental side. So uh, in 75 and onward, of course, there's the seizure of uh, Loyalists' property as Loyalists flee. Uh, and have some property seized, as will continue throughout the war. In seventy-six, there is the seizure of crown property, <clears throat> particularly property in uh, that was held by in the customs houses and other locations, as well as various fortifications. Uh, and then there is the expulsion of loyalists, and all this property is seized. In addition, um, the armies. Uh, on both sides, attack each other, take land, take territory, and seize property along the way. And the navies do. There is the navy that that Congress is trying to put together, a continental navy. George Washington has his own small navy attached to his army, separately from that. The individual colonies had their own navies. And then on top of that, there were privateers sailing for both sides. And privateers sailing for the continental side like the navies, like the continental armies marching around, would seize loyalist property. This was the whole premise of the privateering, right, to seize uh, enemy ships at sea. And this seizure of property could be politically relevant, uh, big headline stories like Henry Knox seizing the guns from Fort Kite, Ticonderoga, and dragging them by oxen across Massachusetts to, to uh, Dorchester Heights to besiege the British troops in Boston. But if you're going to use the cannons in Fort Ticonderoga, why not use the tea that Captain de la was drinking in Fort Ticonderoga too? Um, the ships that are seized um, by... George Washington's Navy, or by privateers that bring in potatoes and coals, that bring in ammunition and guns and clothing, supplies, meaningful supplies meant for British troops that can be seized and used by Continental forces. Uh, Perhaps they bring in rum, perhaps they bring in food, and sometimes they bring tea. Well, if we're going to take the British rum and the British food and the British coals and the British guns, why are we going to draw the line at the tea? That seems quite silly. Um, Since we're taking all of these things and Weaponizing that our enemies' goods against them in our war against them to use British tea in particular becomes this potentially an avenue of resistance rather than um, uh, of Britain rather than an avenue of supporting uh, the crown. Uh, and so uh, the war makes the entire logic and mechanics of a boycott of Britain cease to make any meaningful sense since In fact, it becomes consuming British goods that have been seized uh, that becomes perhaps one of the most potent consumer decisions you can make in 1775.
2: So now that you've taken us through the rise and fall um, of tea politics and really helped us properly understand what happened or didn't um in 73 74 and 75 uh i'm obviously i'm not going to ask you to go beyond the book and kind of explain tea and everything ever since because i think that's very helpful for illuminating this period i do have one final question though um we know what happens after 1975 1970, uh, sorry 1775 and 1776 we know that tea is still very much something drunk on both sides of the Atlantic today What we don't know is what you might be working on now or next, um, given that this small, just an article, oh, whoops, now it's a whole book, is done. It's finally off your plate. Um, Is there anything you might be working on you want to highlight?
1: Yes. Well, let me just say, first of all, I would say that uh, I haven't quite mentioned it yet, but that Congress does eventually lift its ban on T, and that ends in April of 76, just two months before it declares independence. And it, when it lifts its ban, as we've been intimating, it does so completely uh, and utterly embracing the idea that it's, the ban had been wildly ineffective and therefore was pointless to enact. So I, in the book, I draw the analogy to the American, well, actually, uh, many other countries, including Canada did it too, uh, but the American experiment in prohibition. And of course, there were dry towns in Britain too. Um, and, and that prohibition experiment was a disaster in the 1920s. is largely known as such today, um, but uh, it's useful to think of prohibition in 75 along similar lines. Um, so what am I doing next? I have some small articles that I hope to do that will not have any that will hopefully not metastasize into giant books um, because uh, they're supposed to be small articles. Uh, So I'm hoping to do something on uh, the slave trade and uh, the Continental Association. One of the trades that is banned by the Continental Association is the slave trade. uh, And I find the literature on this somewhat perplexing and confusing. And I think there's space to say something a little more, a little different and a little more complex about how the ban on slave trade intersected with merchants and the story of money in the American Revolution. Um, But I also have other projects. Uh, I'm not simply, uh, uh, I'm not purely a U.S. historian, but I do uh, the British Empire as well. And so I'm also working on a monograph on the Suez Canal.
2: Hmm. All right. Well, very intriguing. Um, and both both the ones related to this book and beyond. I think they're if you found space to tell something nuanced and complex, well, this book definitely speaks to that. So anyone interested in reading even more details that we you know, we were doing a bit of an overview. We couldn't get into every detail, but there's a lot of fun ones in the book. So for anyone wanting more of that, um, please do check the book out titled Tea, Consumption, Politics and Revolution, 1773 to 1776, published by Cornell University Press. James, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Miranda. It was an honour and a pleasure. Thank you for having me.